and welcome to Dissecting Philosophy with Dr. McDonald. In this episode, we'll be continuing on with our discussion of Nietzsche's concepts of the Apollonian and Dionysian from his book, The Birth of Tragedy. So, last episode, we dealt with the discussion of the Apollonian and Dionysian and how they work together, and fantastically had some contemporary film examples to back that up, such as Shrek and Donkey, Shrek being the Apollonian, Donkey being the Dionysian. In this episode, then, we'll be taking a look at how exactly Socrates and Plato comes into the mix for Nietzsche. First, then, we'll be looking at Socrates' removal of this Apollonian and Dionysian dynamic, and then the problems in removing specifically the Dionysian element. Then we'll be having a look at the Socratic influence in Greek drama, and again having a relation into contemporary films, and then we'll be rounding off with a positive note, ending on the benefits of precisely the Dionysian element that what Nietzsche wants us to eventually reach the point of in our own mind as well. The positive aspects of this dynamic working together, rather than having just solely the Apollonian in which Socrates and Plato just want. So then, that's what we'll be aiming for, and what we'll be starting off is with this removal of this dualism, which is just a posh way of saying how these two things work. So for Nietzsche then, when you have the emergence of Socrates, you have precisely the dynamic between the Apollonian and Dionysian being denied in preference to logic and reason. And there's a great quote here as it states, what drives Socrates is something new, logic. From here onwards, Socratic optimism is set against Dionysian pessimism, and philosophy usurps the place of art. So, what is the key thing then about what exactly does Plato and Socrates do is that our relation to the world is made secondary as reflective of the same idea and no longer challenges it anymore. So there's this complete lack of a critical sort of engagement with the world. All that benefit that we had out of the emotional aspect of Creon, if people remember from the last episode, in Antigone. Creon has that fantastic Dionysian moment of, oh my god, what have I done? Ultimately, my actions has led to the death of Antigone and all the various different other characters. And then there's that nice, beneficial, positive reflection from his own actions, from him simply going, oh my god, I've done the complete wrong thing. Now, with Socrates and Plato, there's this lack of this critical element to it completely. Our relation to the world is secondary because, as we just said, everything becomes reflective of the same idea. And so, that's just to touch upon the brief way in which we could touch into Plato's philosophy. What overall do we have for Plato's metaphysics? 
is that we have the idea with a capital I. And what exactly is that? Is something that's pure, eternal, everlasting. What is everything in the world? It's a copy of that idea. So let's use a basic example. You have the idea of a dog and then everything in the world is a copy of the dog. And you can literally use any different example like you like from chairs to tables to cheeseburgers and so on. And then everybody goes, oh God, please stop going on about food. You just make me hungry every time I listen. <laughs> so let's use example then of food to start into the realm of ideal judgments. And this is where we reach into the problems of Plato and Socrates. What are the problems with ideal judgments in choosing something to eat? And so you immediately have that in mind, of course, is that you go for your absolute favorite things, or specifically that you have an ideal meal in preparation. Let's say it's a nice, lovely, romantic dinner that you have in mind and have exactly the perfect thing down. And then what's the problem with that? <laughs> Potentially everything could go wrong. You're not able to get the ingredients. You're not able to set the room nicely, romantically. Somehow the... Barry White or whatever you're going to try to put on for the mood doesn't work because the internet's down and so on. Constantly there's always those little niggles of all those little things that can go wrong. Then we get into the problems of again selecting a good film to watch which is of course almost a daily thing for me being a nice bit of a film buff and want to go and watch a good movie. Which, feel free to send me some good suggestions. I'm always in the mood for watching a good movie at the email address at dissectingphilosophy at gmail.com. If anybody thinks, oh, I've seen something really good recently, feel free to just drop me that email. And I'll be more than happy to probably give it a wee watch because I'm always on the hunt for a good movie. So... What is the problem with selecting a good film? And you can go into Netflix or whatever streaming service that we have and immediately we went to the same mindset. I've got a great action movie that I want to watch and hit me with all the examples. And then suddenly you've presented with all the given films, but nothing really entices you whatsoever. There's nobody that you want to watch in any of the movies. Let's say you really dislike Dwayne Johnson, so you think to yourself, nah, not really doing anything for me there. Then you're not really in an Arnold Schwarzenegger sort of mood for that day either. And you're kind of like, eh. So really for the foot example and the film example, we're touching upon some key points about all the little niggles of how things can go wrong then we can go into listen to somebody else's opinion having an ideal judgment so what you have is let's say one person is an absolutely fanatic sports fan and we have the olympics on at the minute as well absolutely adores let's say basketball and therefore, they'll give you all the spiel about how much the team is doing and how much they're fantastic. 
from the opinion point about it as well, we can see how somebody's ideal preference for one thing over the other will be also trying to say these are the best elements about this team. This is what makes them the best. And then again, it denies out all the various different other teams and then makes everything look much worse in comparison. So it's all trying to seduce you into supporting the same team at the same time. So we have all these things at work. We have an ideal basis for something. And then we continually have all these little niggles that happen within our everyday life. Within that chance of having an ideal thing that we fancy to eat and then just... It doesn't happen for us. It's that actual Big Mac versus the ideal Big Mac. It's selecting a film, but really nothing that you like about whatever movie it is that you watch, that you have. Even for the film example, it would be great if you have that ideal expectation. I had this recently as well, to go off on a side note. For Space Jam 2 and my love of LeBron James and basketball, I thought that movie was going to be absolutely fantastic to watch because of also loving Space Jam 1 as a child. Then you go into it and then you think to yourself, oh God, this entire movie is just a complete plug for everything Warner Brothers and you just sit there and you think to yourself oh god why but of course that's what happens when you have that ideal expectation it's something that you set the bar up for yourself and then nothing can quite hit that bar just like Space Jam 2 <laughs> so we started off on quite a nice footing we've had Plato and Socrates, the removal of the Dionysian, the setting up of the ideal and the idea as well. Then we start to get into a bit of the problems with this ideal judgment and bar that can be set up in Space Jam 2. <laughs> so, let's go from this and go into our Greek play example then. So in the last episode, we had Antigone. And in this episode, we're going to have Euripides' Medea. And let's give some background and context to Euripides' Medea. It was written in 431 BC. When it's performed as well, I'm pretty sure that it comes in last as well for the overall play because there's some there's an annual sort of play thing that happens within Athens and then all the big playwrights come out and put on their plays and this one comes in last I'm pretty sure as my classics teacher told me at high school so what is the context for Medea is that Medea is a barbarian wife of Jason who is Jason he is the guy who goes and gets the golden fleece. Yes, that Jason. And then everybody listens to go, <laughs> who, what Jason? But if one of those things is if you've never seen the movie Clash of the Titans, go and have a wee watch of it. Because I'm pretty sure it's within that movie that you have the whole golden fleece. And if I'm wrong, I apologize. But it's still a great movie for Clash of the Titans. The original one with... Harry House and, and all the fantastic 
little miniature work that goes on. So we have Medea and she's the barbarian wife of Jason from Jason from the Argonauts. But she seeks revenge on him. Why? Why does she seek revenge on her husband? Because Jason has betrayed her by arranging to be married to Glauke, who is daughter of Creon, king of Corinth. So Medea plans and succeeds to kill Glauke, Creon, and her own children in order to ravel in Jason's misery. So it's an absolutely just horrific action that she takes and seeking precisely revenge against Jason for marrying someone else. So let's go into a quote as well that Jason gives this speech after he's learned exactly what she's done. Jason says, You loathsome creature, hateful beyond all other women to the gods, to me and the whole human race, you have had the ruthlessness to drive a sword into the children whom you bore. My mind is clear now, but it was not clear when I brought you from your home in a barbarian land to a house in Greece. Disaster that you are. There is no Greek woman who could ever have brought herself to do this, and yet I chose you before all of them as a fitting wife for me. You are no woman but a lioness, more savage by nature. So you get this absolutely scathing attack against Medea, and quite rightly so, for what she's done. But there's also a problem with what Jason's just said. Why exactly is that problem, and what does he fail to address? He's called her a barbarian. He's called her an absolute disaster. There is no Greek woman who could ever brought herself to do this. So here we're starting to get a bit of the whole division between what a Greek woman would do, which would be virtuous, let's say, honor her husband, and the barbarian, savage, goes against what her husband says and does. But why is he actually failing to address? He talks a lot about her. What does he not talk about? Easy enough. He doesn't talk about himself and what exactly he's done. Because quite a good counter to this would be, hold on, wait a minute, Mr. Jason of the Argonauts with your golden fleece. You're the one that precisely goes and marries another woman whilst you're already married in the first place. Quite rightly so, right? There's a nice counter point to be made, not to justify in any way what she's done, but precisely there is no point like what we had with Creon in Antigone that Jason has. There's no point in which there's that moment of, oh my god, what have I done? 
my actions have ultimately led my wife to do all these heinous things there's none of that whatsoever he goes on this complete tirade against Medea without having that emotional critical reflection upon himself at all he fails to address his own actions and so here we could say there's already an aspect about the positive part of the Dionysian it's not to justify Medea it's for Jason to come and have that critical reflection upon himself so let's then move from a discussion of Medea and let's move this into a contemporary context and I want to look at specifically the way in which North Koreans are presented to us in film and want to conflict this between two different approaches and the first one is from the American movie Olympus Has Fallen with Jared Butler from 2013. So the brief plot synopsis for this is from IMDB which literally says Secret Service agent Mike Banning who's played by Jared Butler finds himself trapped inside the White House in the wake of a terrorist attack and works with national security to rescue the president from his kidnappers which who are the terrorists is the North Koreans as well as we have another movie that's really great to use here is Red Dawn and the remake precisely of it which was released in 2012 where we have a comparable example of Chris Hemsworth in the movie saving us from the North Koreans and this is what it says here the city of Spokane Washington is awakened by a North Korean paratrooper invasion so what exactly is the point here that I'm trying to make is that we have a very much comparable example to the way in which Jason treats Medea as a barbarian come out in this American ways in which North Koreans are portrayed to us is something barbarian something other something that's completely out the realms of all humanity whatsoever because what is a good thing is American values American lifestyle what is ultimately that fighting against something that's completely other barbarian and for all intents and purposes in the movies evil However, we're able to get a completely different idea of North Koreans from the movie Joint Security Area, which is a Korean movie from 2011. And Joint Security Area helps reevaluate this idea of North Koreans. The first example that you could find as well is a clip of just simply a person from South Korea and another person meant to be from North Korea standing opposite each other over the line that separates North and South Korea and what they do is have a spitting competition between each other and one spits and then the other spits and so forth and they start to laugh and so forth as they do it and the other clip from Joint Security Area 
is when a group of tourists is meant to be visiting the area and it's a group of Americans and just suddenly out of nowhere a gust of wind happens and blows off one of their hats across the line and then a North Korean guard comes and picks it up and hands it back to the lady. And immediately what you're meant to think is what's going to happen is they're going to stamp on the hat and not hand it back. But of course, the complete opposite of that happens. So what am I trying to get at with this whole point about North Korea is that you have a comparable example directly to the points in which we want to talk about Medea at the same time. It's not a justification of North Korea or what they've done whatsoever. Just in the same sense for Medea, it's not a justification for her actions whatsoever. But having this Dionysian element allows us to have a critical reflection upon our emotions, upon portrayals, all in a very positive sense. In Medea, we have it precisely in relation to Jason being able to reflect upon his own actions in a positive sense. And this is to challenge just the stereotypical image of people being completely other, completely foreign and barbarian, just like what the traditional sort of American approaches to what the North Koreans would be like. Is everybody like that? No. And it's a completely wrong idea to try and broad stroke the entire of the North Korean population as being barbaric and being completely other to us. Because when we get down to the old the bare bones basic about humanity, don't we all feel empathy for each other and so forth? And case in point we can only empathize with all the horrific things that's happening precisely to people that's always reported from the people that's come out of North Korea and managed to escape. So what can we nicely say about the problems of this denial of the Dionysian is that it leaves us with in terms of the philosophy side of things a pure metaphysics that's detached from the world which is Plato's ideas with a capital I the importance of reason over the importance of our body and our emotions because that's also a thing quite interestingly as a little side note here that 20th century philosophy then delves much more into and a nice philosopher philosopher of the body is Maurice Merleau-Ponty and he deals with all the various different philosophical aspects of the body just as a little side note and his big book is called The Phenomenology of Perception. Another point about this problem in the denial of Dionysian also privileges certain values like the soul as always being good as they always lead to truth and there's also a complete denial of any possibility of re-evaluation rethinking and challenging our ideas so then the benefits precisely of this Dionysian element that Nietzsche wants to emphasize is that the world that's to say social cultural political historical forces affect our ideas Nietzsche's book The Genealogy of Morality from 1887 is the book in which Nietzsche precisely goes into those 
ideas of what good and evil are and to say well actually there's no such thing as pure good and pure evil but rather we are all historically socially culturally conditioned into what our ideas actually are of good and evil and therefore our ideas can change very much about how we think about what's good and evil another point that's also made is that our body has an effect on how we think such as hunger and illness another fun example from Nietzsche is the way in which she goes into this sort of physiology of not doing philosophy in the morning doing it in the afternoon avoiding coffee and various different little things he tries to say which all good for our body our ideas of truth overall as well then change over time and are not eternally true as well as Nietzsche's philosophy is that of an affirmation of re-evaluation that is continually rethinking and challenging our ideas and to overall wrap up then what can we say is that Socrates denies any worldly influence that is to say Dionysian influence to affect our ideas to base our knowledge instead on a metaphysics this leads to universal knowledge for all individuals to reflect upon the same ideas with a capital i yet this denies the possibility of challenging our ideas of truth and the benefits of the worldly influence in the dionysian demonstrates that our ideas change over time and that they are able to be revalued or transformed so feel free to drop me an email at my address at dissectingphilosophy at gmail.com feel free to tip me a coffee at coffee.com forward slash dissectingphilosophy ko-fi.com forward slash dissectingphilosophy feel free to check out the patreon page where there's a discussion of Slavoj Zizek's pandemic 2 going on as well as a full discussion of pandemic 1 there is a £1 tier subscription as well as the £5 tier subscription and that will unlock all the episodes of the Slavoj Zizek at www.patreon.com forward slash dissecting philosophy and lastly i can be found on twitter at i am a rubber man many thanks for listening and i hope you'll join me next time